On this day of all days, there's a chance now to slightly vary the usual emphasis. Instead of highlighting the collective tragedy suffered by Australian society during World War I, with its 60,000 or so deaths, we want to focus on some of the individuals who died so young, so full of promise, to try to grasp better the impact of loss on the women around them, on their families, on the young, modern Australia. This curiosity is what drove historian and biographer Ross McMullen, who's followed up his superb 2012 book called Farewell, Dear People, Biographies of Australia's Lost Generation, with a new work where we really get to know three talented young soldiers and where the loss of their potential is charted. The three soldiers are Brian Pockley, Norman Calloway and Murdoch Mackay. And we'll spend more time on Murdoch's story for reasons you'll discover. Ross's new book is Life So Full of Promise, Further Biographies of the Lost Generation. Ross, a warm welcome back to Saturday Extra. Good morning, Geraldine. Look, you seem to have struck a rich vein exploring the lives of people who didn't leave their papers for posterity. They were just so young. Is this type of research getting harder as time moves on? It does have its uh, difficulties, challenges, Geraldine, but the big aid that's emerged is uh, Trove, the National Library resource, which enables you to just type in a name at home and follow up mentions in old newspapers is marvellous. So technology is an absolute hero (laughs) in this point. Certainly, certainly. You bring together the events of the battlefield, and I presume this is exactly where it takes you, the character of the soldier and the soldier's families. It's it's a, a much fuller, I think, satisfying snapshot than so much military history. Was this approach used at all in the decades immediately after the war? Not so much, I don't think, partly because, as we've just discussed, it, it, it was a lot harder then. But uh, I, I think a feature of what I've been doing certainly is, is that blend you've referred to, that the both, both uh, detail about what happened to them at the battlefields and also detail um, about uh, the home front and their families and in the case of uh, the individuals in my book, uh, what was the detail about what was so special about them? Yes, yeah, so, so you, you focus on three young men, uh, Murdoch Mackay, uh, Norman Calloway and Brian Pockley. Now, I have to confess a bit of an interest, uh, a personal connection that I didn't anticipate when I got your book about Murdoch Mackay uh, because, um, and this will become clear, my late husband's mother was actually re- involved in his story. Now, he was widely known as Doc from Bendigo and Victoria. Can you tell us about him, please? Yes. Um, his family was very well known at Bendigo. His grandfather, Angus, founded the Bendigo Advertiser. He arrived at Bendigo in the middle of the gold rush, uh, made a big success of the Bendigo Advertiser, um, went into Parliament, became a minister, um, successful achievements there. His son, George, George Mackay, was also an outstanding editor of the Bendigo Advertiser. Um, And his son, that is the Patriarch's grandson, was Doc. Now, Doc um, uh, was a precociously talented scholar. He um, arrived at Melbourne Uni, uh, aged only 16, and proceeded to go through his law course, 
by coming first in final year with first-class honours. He won the prestigious Supreme Court Prize, qualified for the Master of Laws degree, all shortly after he'd just turned 20. Goodness. And the law professor concluded that in almost two decades at Melbourne Uni, he'd taught no abler students. So he is 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 a, a real star uh, as a scholar, um, and it continues. He... Um, he went on to make his mark at the High Court as a barrister very quickly. Um, he involved himself in politics as well as the law um, in the, in, during the 1913 referenda campaign. And um, he also, uh, Geraldine, top scored for Bendigo with a fine innings against a match against a touring English test team. <laughs> he was the complete man. He was. And he met Margot Watson who was my uh, late husband's grandmother, as it turns out, in 1910 and fell head over heels in love with her. Uh, now, that's where it becomes tricky for decisions facing both Doc and Margot, doesn't it? Yes. Um, he, was, he was a very emotionally open sort of a chap, so he had no qualms whatsoever about uh, uh, frankly telling her how he felt. Um, he, he wrote quite soon after he met her, a, a, a frank letter saying, um, you know, I'm in love with you and um, I think about you all the time. Uh, but Margot, however, unfortunately for Doc, didn't reciprocate with the same intensity. Um, she liked him, was flattered by his ardent interest, but she wasn't willing to close off her options with an exclusive commitment when she was only 18. And in actual fact, he had been fervently in love with Margot for for four years when World War One began, and he was still waiting for her to commit. <laughs> yes, and so he they did eventually, didn't they? Marry um, uh, just before he left Australia as a captain with the AIF, and he served at Gallipoli and the Western Front. He was a very very good leader, actually. Um, yes. but sadly, he died, didn't he, uh, as a result of uh, the Posier campaign. Yes, yes, he he um, he he's not only had this outstanding um, civilian career, uh, he was also outstanding as a frontline officer in the AIF, which is which doesn't always go hand in hand. Those two very different roles, um, but he he was a brilliant leader and no less an authority than Charles Bean, Australia's um, outstanding official historian of World War One. Uh, declared that Australia's most momentous success in the entire Somme campaign in 1916, all those battles around Pozieres, was due to an, an outstanding individual act of leadership by Doc Mackay. Gee. Remarkable accolade. Mm. It, it, what, what, what Doc did was so special in that moment um, that, it, that it paved the way for this uh, uh, big success uh, on the battlefield and the men he led went on to attain the objectives um, at that time. But unfortunately, in the process, Doc himself was killed. Now, the, the point is, uh, quickly, how Margot lived through the dilemmas of, of, of this. I mean, the, these were the, the, the dilemmas of a young woman sitting back watching all this amidst the tragedy. Yes. Well, uh, I think thinking about things from the perspective of women like Margot at the time, I mean, she's, she's only 22 
Um, she's not sure whether to get married or not. Um, and there's all this uncertainty around her. There's terrible wars broken out. What lay ahead was very unclear. She was oppressed by the kinds of questions that were perturbing so many Australian women. Um, what would happen if Doc was drawn into the conflict? What if they did marry before he left and he came back transformed and broken? Was she prepared to spend the rest of her life nursing a shattered shell of a husband? What if he didn't return at all and she became pregnant before he left? Yet, was it fair for women to focus on such risks when their men were prepared to face horrendous perils and would, would mm. be doing so to some extent on their behalf? Yeah, these questions, Geraldine, of course, are very confronting, if not impossible to answer, but the war had made them unavoidable for, for a lot of women like Margot. Now, as it turns out, so he was 25 when he died. Uh, she was just 22. She didn't get pregnant, did she? She did not get pregnant, Thankfully. No. Now, we come to the sort of, in a way, a climax. Uh, how did you find, in the aftermath of all this, you start your research and you think, well, where am I going to find Margot? Um, what happened? I, I sort of found that after ferreting for a while that Margot had become Mrs. S. Hill of London, which wasn't a terrifically encouraging discovery from Melbourne-based biographer Geraldine back then. And um, But I, I kept having a go and trying to find a way to, to connect with Margot's descendants, if there were descendants. And I ended up finding that she had a daughter named Judy, um, who, knew, who you knew well, Geraldine, and Judy had... But it was then living in a Melbourne suburb, and when I went to see her, she produced this black tin box which had everything in it that had been retained by Margot about Doc. Yes, I know that black tin box. It was shown to me as well, and yes. I didn't know what to do with it. And to find out that you made such use of it was just a fabulous moment for me, I must say. You say it's one of, one of the richest private treasure troves in terms of um, uh, research that, that a biographer could possibly find. Absolutely. I mean, it's it, it's it's far and away the richest that I've known in four decades of doing biographies, Geraldine, yes. Now, you have a copy of the letter that was sent to Margot after Doc's death. Could I ask you to read some of it, please? Yes. So, certainly, Geraldine. And this he wrote this letter in case he died and asked and arranged for a friend to send it. I had hoped that the time would never come when you should read this letter. I hoped all through, darling, that it would not be very long before I would be restored to you and you to me in order that we might enjoy together those beautiful years of married life to which we had been looking forward so eagerly. You were everything to me, darling. From the time I came to know you, dearie, I was in love with you and wanted to marry you and spend my life loving you. I can never forget that lovely day when you became my wife and the beautiful week afterwards. The memory of them, dearie, were always with me and I used to live them all over and over again in my thoughts, dearie. How they used to cheer and comfort me, darling, when I was far away from the dear, dear wife I loved so very dearly. Do you think a love like that can die, dearie? It couldn't end. It was too big a love, too great a love to be conquered by death. 
And of course, um, two days uh, after they did get married, I think it was two or three days, he uh, he was sent off to the front and, and that was that. Now, look, in the time remaining, um, I want you, if you wouldn't mind, to talk about Norman Calloway and Brian Pockley, the other two people you focus on, again, drilling down very much into the granular nature of their life. If we go to Hay in the New South Wales Riverina to meet Norman Calloway, fabulous picture of his handsome face in the book. Uh, And you put the case that he was a budding cricket champion as well. Uh, You know, another very well-rounded young man. Um, He he had tremendous potential as a cricketer. Um, The family moved from Hay to Sydney in 1912 to give 16-year-old Norm the opportunity to develop his cricket and see how far his talent could take him. Um, He progressed rapidly in Sydney And in February 1915, so this is just two months before the Anzac landings, uh, Norman was selected to make his debut at first-class level for New South Wales against Queensland at the SCG. Uh, New South Wales were in big trouble when 18-year-old Norman came in to make his first-class debut, uh, and he proceeded to make a dazzling 207. Uh, Everything changed for Norm when casualties at Gallipoli began to rise. Uh, The New South Wales Cricket Association abruptly cancelled first-class cricket. The New South Wales administrators were adamant. They insisted that cricketers should be in khaki and players like Norm were under constant pressure and it was reiterated in a variety of implicit and explicit ways that volunteering was the right and manly thing to do. And in the end, um, Norm, under relentless pressure, uh, decided to enlist in 1916. I see. And he had a, he had a very grim time at the Western Front, died at Bully Corps, um, 3rd of May, 1917. Finally, perhaps we could meet Brian Pockley, whom you write was a household name throughout Australia in the early stages of World War One. but he's really been quite forgotten by history, hasn't he? How can you tell us about him, please? Well, I think they all have been forgotten by history, um, Geraldine. Uh, Brian uh, was a very talented uh, scholar and sportsman. Um, he excelled um, in rugby, athletics, uh, graduated in medicine with honours, um, he was. He had. He had a very endearing personality, which was part of his. Part of his uh, appeal to others. Um, he became a, a doctor at Sydney Uni- Sydney Hospital um, in 1914. Shortly afterwards, uh, the war broke out. Brian was very keen to be involved. He became a doctor with the ANMEF, the the force um, set up to quickly dart up to uh, New Guinea and other parts, uh, other other, uh, areas north of Australia in pursuit of German wireless stations up there. Uh, They went ashore on the 11th of September 1914 to deal with a wireless station um, uh, southeast of Rabaul and uh, they had a tougher assignment than they expected and Brian was... Uh, killed in very noble circumstances, in that he relinquished his his brassard, his the 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 armband with a badge on it, that uh, connoted his his medical status. He gave this brassard away, and that made him more vulnerable. And that was how he ended up being shot. Right. And when this became known, the circumstances, the relinquishing of the brassard became known back in Australia, um, he, he became a very well-known name indeed Lord. at that time. 
Well, Ross, look, thank you for bringing the lives of these young men and their families uh, alive on the page. Uh, let's hope a few um, uh, young students also get hold of it and see it in, in, in its fullness. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, Ross. Thank you very much, Geraldine. And Ross's new book, Life So Full of Promise, it's published by Scribe and is the sequel to Farewell, Dear People, which was awarded the Prime Minister's Prize for History. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.